welcome to the Anarchist Book Club with Danny Evans and me, Jim Yeoman. In this episode, we are joined by Arturo Zofman Rodriguez of the Universidade Nova de Lisboa in Portugal. Arturo's work focuses on the transnational and comparative history of revolutions and radical ideas, with a particular focus on Russia and the Hispanic world. Our discussion focuses on Arturo's studies on the impact of the Russian Revolution of 1917 on anarchist movements around the world, focusing particularly on the CNT in Spain, which can be found in the publications Revolutionary Russia and the European History Quarterly. A link to a more comprehensive bibliography of Arturo's work can be found in the notes to this show. This was a fascinating and lively chat with an exciting young scholar, which we both thoroughly enjoyed. Arturo is currently transforming his PhD thesis, which centres on the subjects we cover in this episode, into a book, and we look forward to seeing this come out in the near future. Welcome, Arturo, to our to our podcast. It's really lovely to to meet you and to have you on uh, to discuss your work primarily around the response of anarchists in Spain and internationally um, to the Russian Revolution, and and I'm sure lots of different like themes and ideas are going to stretch out from that. So we'll start just in a, in a very broad question, but what was the initial response of anarchists around the world to the Russian Revolution? Of, 1917. Thank you, uh, Jim and, and Danny. It's a pleasure to to be here with you and to have a chance to uh, to uh, discuss my work with uh, with top experts uh, of uh, of anarchism and Spanish anarchism in particular. So uh, it's a real privilege. And yes, uh, that's a good good opening question. To uh, to keep it simple, the initial impact. Of the Russian Revolution was, I mean, the initial response was one of uh, enthusiasm and support, despite the fact that most most anarchists were aware uh, of the Marxist ideology of the Bolsheviks. They still supported the Russian Revolution as a great uh, people's revolution, a social revolution as well that transcended the liberal and political boundaries of of uh, of the bourgeois revolutions of the of the nineteenth century. In a way, it was related to the it was was associated to the to the Paris Commune, in the sense that it was a, a, a transformation of the social structure and of the economy along collectivist uh, lines, and that really, in the eyes of most anarchists, was more important than ideological uh, nuances and the the Marxist character of the Bolshevik uh, Party. There was also a strong interest for the Soviets as a form of uh, grassroots organization. And uh, in any case, we have to remember that the Russian Revolution Revolution took place uh, in the final stage of the First World War, which had really redefined uh, the dividing lines of the labor movement internationally. In a way, and this is, I claim this in my, in my PhD thesis, there was a coming together of anti-war anarchists and socialists. And in a way, one's position vis-a-vis the First World War was more important than uh, formal ideological categories such as anarchism or Marxism. So in a way, uh, a militant anarchist could feel closer to, say, Lenin or Rosa Luxemburg than to uh, Kropotkin or Malato, who supported the, the, the war. But I'm talking here about the early stages. There was a global support for the for the Russian Revolution among anarchists. As time went on, we start to see uh, a certain differentiation. In in very general terms, we can uh, say that in the Latin countries and perhaps also in North America, and I'm including here Latin America as well, support for the Russian Revolution was deeper and it was more long lasting. Uh, whereas in Germanic uh, Europe especially in um, in Germany, where we have figures like uh, Rudolf Rocker or Fritz Scatter, and in Sweden as well, the Central uh, Workers' Organization of Sweden. Here we see that uh, an anti-Marxist critique of the Russian Revolution starts to develop at an earlier uh, stage than in, say, Spain or Portugal or Italy or also Mexico or, or Brazil. At the risk of 
boiling it down far too simply. I think what you've described there has really helped me sort of bring my own sort of knowledge from the much earlier period of the anarchist movement in Spain kind of up to this period and join it in. And and is there a sense that it was it felt like a win? You know, like they, from my background, and you know, they've had decades and decades of just like you say, the commune would be the last thing that they're, they're kind of looking on as anything that even resembles a success. And I think sometimes we, you know, perhaps can sort of forget that, imagining that world between the Paris commune and the Russian revolution it doesn't feel like a win if you're on the left of any strike, particularly anarchist. Indeed. And this is uh, repeated very often in anarchist uh, propaganda in Spain and elsewhere. They recognize, they acknowledge the ideological differences with the Bolsheviks. They often say we, we don't agree with them 100% on everything. They've also made some, some mistakes. And this is admitted particularly as time goes, goes by, by 1919, 1920. We start to see some anxiety uh, towards certain aspects of Bolshevik policy. But all in all, they still support the Russian Revolution because, as you say, Jim, it's a, it's a win. It's a victory. Uh, the workers have taken power. Capitalism has been uh, overthrown. And they also understand the global significance of the Russian Revolution. They see it as the first salvo in, uh, in the world revolution, essentially. And we must remember the general context. It's one of uh, open-endedness for revolutionaries of all stripes for socialists and anarchists and syndicalists, but also for anti-colonialists, for radical feminists. It's the end of the, of the First World War and the, the early stages of the Russian Revolution coincide with extreme social upheaval in Europe, but also in other, in other countries. And there is a sense that everything is uh, possible. And uh, yes, the Bolsheviks have made some mistakes, but they, they are forgivable if the Russian Revolution is seen as the as the opening round of uh, a global process of revolutionary transformations. There is also a sense that Russia is a backward country, is a peasant country. Of course, even uh, everywhere, anarchists knew about the repression of the 1905 revolution and the extremely brutal character of the Tsarist regime. So many of them simply reasoned that uh, in, such a, in such backward conditions, such uh, dire economic and social conditions, it is impossible to uh, carry out the revolution smoothly and ideally, uh, and that mistakes are inevitable. So yes, until 1920 or 1921, when the mood be begins to uh, change, there is very much the emphasis on the, on the Bolshevik victory. The, the most important thing is that they have won, and uh, we must follow their example and, and spread the revolution across uh, the entire world. Okay, Arthur. So I, th I think maybe you've already answered this question to an extent. The what you're putting across here seems to be that the anarchist, like the, to the extent that the anarchist reception of the Bolshevik Revolution was positive, they were accepting it warts and all. We'd say right that they're um, that we can't just be put down to, as has been the case um, in some like anarchist accounts that I've read, to a lack of reliable information about what was happening i mean is is that your sense to what extent was like uh, misinformation or lack of information a, a factor here yes then this is a very good question because this is quite a common statement in a lot of the historiography particularly in, in classical pro-anarchist accounts also in more recent uh, publications that essentially this was a misunderstanding provoked by the lack of reliable information as as you say well, I think this is uh, we can assess this statement from two perspectives. First of all, we have to ask ourselves if uh, anarchists really uh, were misinformed about the Russian Revolution. What what were the sources of information? And what I found in my research is that yes, of course, they did not have a, a full picture of what was uh, going on, but uh, they did get access to fairly detailed accounts of uh, the revolutionary process in Russia from a, from a relatively early stage. They had access to, uh, foreign, to the accounts of foreign uh, correspondents. They uh, read and translated the dispatches of the foreign press, not simply the anarchist press, I'm talking about mainstream news agencies. 
they also got access to uh, to the accounts of some of the first foreign travelers to to Russia, such as uh, Arthur Ransom was actually the most important one for the Spanish anarchists. He was read and cited, and and, and his work was uh, was extensively uh, discussed in in anarchist milieu. He was cited, if I'm not mistaken, in the Comedia Congress of 1919. Uh, we have also Etienne uh, Antonelli, who was a, a Frenchman who also traveled traveled to to Soviet Russia. Uh, and all of, uh, all of this became accessible around 1919, 1920. A lot of this stuff was translated into Spanish. We also have reactionary accounts of the Russian Revolution. In Spain, the most uh, important one was Sofia Casanova, who was uh, a correspondent for ABC, for the right-wing newspaper, who was based in Russia, and she only left Russia in late 1917, if I'm not mistaken. We also have lots of, well, we have a significant number of Russian militants who are in Spain when the revolution breaks out. Most of them were exiles in countries like uh, Italy or France who had to flee to Spain after the outbreak of the First World War. Of course, Trotsky is the most uh, famous one, even if his connections to the Spanish labor movement were were fairly superficial. But we also have people like Victor Serge. He had not he was the son of exiles born in Belgium. He had not been to Russia, but he was very familiar with Russian politics. And we had we have all the uh, lesser known uh, characters. According to the Russian consul, this was the old consul from the Tsarist uh, diplomatic corps, there were 700 and, 760 Russian exiles, left-wing exiles, in uh, Barcelona around nine, late 1918. So quite a significant number. Many of them became acquainted with the local anarchists. Some of them even joined the CNT, in fact. So we have different sources of information. And on top of that, we, we start to get the first uh, Bolshevik publications translated into Spanish as early as 1918. The, Soviet, the, the Russian Soviet constitution is uh, translated in that year. Uh, in 1919, 1920, we get works like uh, Terrorism and Communism by Trotsky, The State and Revolution by Lenin. So, to keep a long story short, they 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 had they had access to significant uh, details about the Russian Revolution. It was very clear that the Bolsheviks were Marxists; they were not anarchists. They had not abolished uh, authority, but in fact, they had established a revolutionary dictatorship, following the Marxist theory of uh, of uh, revolution. And they were waging a war against their enemies using fairly ruthless uh, methods. But then the other way that we can approach this question is by asking ourselves if you know there, there might be other explanations for the anarchist uh, support for the Russian Revolution, and this is what I what, what I pointed at in my what I pointed at in my in my earlier interventions, the fact that this was a victory, the revolutionary unity that we find among socialists and anarchists and radicals of different stripes after the First World War. And also a, fa a factor that I have not yet mentioned, but I think it was an important driver of, uh, of pro-Bolshevik sentiments in the CNT and in the anarchist movement more broadly, which is a temptation to capitalize politically on the Russian Revolution and use it as a mobilizing uh, lever and also as a lever for recruitment. This was very important in Spain because the anarchists were competing with the socialists who were actually fairly lukewarm towards the Soviet experiment. So, so the, the, the Spanish anarchists started to pose as the Spanish uh, Bolsheviks. And they used this, I, I believe, as an instrument for recruitment, for growth, uh, and to, yes, to seduce the most uh, militant sectors of the, of the labor movement, including uh, in regions where the socialists had previously been uh, hegemonic. I find that really interesting kind of rejoinder to that claim that you know, almost like, oh, if only they'd known what it was actually like, they never would have supported it. It's like, I'm always wary of arguments that kind of hinge on ignorance, because I think that people do know about what's going on often, and they do have connections, like you say, and they they do know, and, and then it's a judgment call, and then they're making those political decisions, like you say. One way that that information then starts to come more directly is from the, the various delegates that, that do go over from Spain um, from the CNT to Bolshevik Russia slightly later on. Um, you have Angel Pestaña and then uh, the group that you study more closely in your article, the larger group of, of CNT delegates. Before we talk about their impressions of Russia, I think it would be interesting to hear what was the reaction of, of 
Bolsheviks to these foreign anarchists turning up, you know, you know, particularly the Spanish delegates, but others as well. A little bit later into the revolution, you know, were they welcoming? Were they surprised? Were they kind of curious as to who this this group of Spaniards were who, you know, decided to, to, to come along? Um, what can we say about that? The Bolsheviks were always uh, very clear that the communist international should uh, try to recruit as many anarchists as possible. It should strive to win them over. The communist international, however, was not a loose federation of uh, groups, but it was actually a fairly centralized and, and disciplined Bolshevik organization, styled after the Bolshevik party, at least. Um, so, yes, they strive to win them over, but... Uh, also to convince them of their uh, ideas and to turn them into uh, revolutionary Marxists, essentially. So yes, they invited them over to uh, to Soviet Russia, but when they were there, of course, they underwent a lot of uh, browbeating and, uh, and Bolshevik uh, Bolshevik propaganda, essentially. So it was a it was a complicated uh, relationship. The Bolsheviks were welcoming, but at the same time, there was a certain arrogance uh, to their to their attitude, and they tended to to win over most of, to win most of the of the debates in the in the in the communist international. Uh, but yes, they they tried to uh, convince them of their of their point of view quite forcefully, but without resorting, of course, to to repression or to administrative measures at this point. And the Bolsheviks also considered that in countries such as uh, Spain, in, in the Latin countries in particular, the anarchists actually represented the most uh, militant and the healthiest sector of the labor movement. Lenin famously defined anarchism as the consequence of the reformist uh, sins of social democracy. That's his uh, formulation. In Lenin's opinion, the, the anarchists were mistaken, but they were sort of reacting to uh, the opportunism of the official Marxist uh, parties. So it was a positive attitude, but, uh, but also uh, quite a, a haughty one in, 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 some, in some ways. At the same time, we have to differentiate within the Bolshevik party. We see different uh, opinions. Uh, Lenin in particular, but also others, such as uh, Tomsky, who was the leader of the Soviet trade unions, they, were, they actually proved quite flexible and they were willing to make uh, certain concessions to the to the anarchists without, uh, of course, uh, going into questions of principle or, 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 or important ideological issues. But they were willing, for instance, to change uh, the language of their of, of their of, of their documents and so on. And then we have others. We have the, the hardliners, people like uh, Radek, especially, but also some foreign delegates such as the German communist leader Paul uh, Levy who were much more intransigent um, and quite rude uh, towards the, the anarchists. Also, it is important to note that it was not simply the, Spani the Spanish uh, Zenetistas who went over to Moscow in 1920 and in 1921, but there were dozens of uh, anarchists from different, from different uh, countries. And finally, uh, as an afterthought, I'd say that Bolshevik policy towards the Russian anarchists was also fairly complex. There was a lot of uh, repression as early as uh, as the spring of 1918, but also there were alliances between anarchist groups and the Soviet power, not only in the big cities, but also this had a regional uh, dimension as well. And uh, the connections with the anarchist movement and, and, and the Soviet authorities until the Kronstadt Rebellion in 1921 were actually fairly complex and cannot simply be uh, brushed off as one of uh, repression and, uh, and, 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 and hostility, simply. We can say that on the one hand, there's sustained in enthusiasm for the Bolshevik Revolution among um, anarchists, particularly, as you say, in, in Latin countries. On the other hand, you have a desire among uh, leading Bolsheviks to win over international anarchists, including uh, allowing for a certain even degree of flexibility in how those like relationships and, and overtures were carried out. And yet, when it comes to the actual formation of communist parties in countries like Mexico and Spain, they're not created from within the anarchist movements, but they're splits from the socialist parties. 
So how, how do we explain that apparent paradox? I think there was a strong element of contingency in the formation of uh, communist parties internationally. And the case of uh, Mexico and Spain is actually quite remarkable because both were created by the same uh, people, by a Soviet agent called Mikhail Borodin and his team, uh, which comprised of uh, an American, uh, a young American man called Charles Phillips and also, uh, also an Indian called uh, Manabendra Nath uh, Roy and an American uh, woman, Evelyn Trent. They met in Mexico in 1919. Borodin had traveled there as a Soviet diplomat in an attempt to establish some sort of alliance or to explore the possibility of collaboration between the Soviet Republic and the Mexican revolutionary authorities. Uh, Mexico was still going through its well, through the last phase of its revolution, where the liberal nationalist bloc around Carranza had already uh, consolidated itself in power. And also, Borodin was sent to Mexico to try to establish the, co the Communist International uh, in Mexico and in Latin America. And he met with uh, Charles Phillips, who was an American deserter who had fled uh, the United States after its entrance into the, into the war. And essentially, the, yes, as you said, the Communist Party was created on the basis of the Mexican Socialist Party, was, which was a, a very small uh, force made up of uh, intellectuals, essentially, in the capital. We're talking here of a few dozen uh, militants at best, where, whereas they disregarded the Mexican anarchist movement, which was the most uh, dynamic tendency in the labor movement, not to say the only real tendency in, in, in the Mexican labor movement. This responded to Baradin's own personal biases and, uh, and his own uh, outlook. He was very ignorant of Mexican uh, politics and he had a strong prejudice against uh, the anarchists. He belonged to the, the so-called uh, hawks that I mentioned before, people like Radek and so on in the Bolshevik party who were very dismissive towards uh, the anarchists. So he basically oriented himself to the, to the socialist uh, party and basically he mechanically tried to replicate what was going on in uh, in Central Europe, in countries like Germany or Czechoslovakia, where the communist parties were created on the basis of social democracy. So the Mexican Communist Party was born as a very small force. And this was a subjective uh, decision, also in the sense that the Mexican anarchist movement was very supportive of the, of the Russian Revolution, in fact. Possibly, in a way, more so than the Spanish anarchist movement. Uh, and I will comment on this uh, later, if I have the time. But then Borodin traveled from Mexico to Spain and he basically did the same thing. Rather than settling in Barcelona, he, he went to Madrid, where, of course, the anarchists were relatively weak, whereas the socialists were, were much stronger. Uh, his mission in Spain was to set up a communist party in that country. And he did so through the, the socialist party and particularly through the socialist uh, youth. And in fact, the, it was the CNT that took the initiative of contacting uh, Borodin and his team but they essentially, they, uh, they this completely ignored them. They said, well, they are anarchists and nothing can be done with them. Uh, eventually, they'll come over to the, to the Communist Party, but that will happen uh, at, a, at a later stage. Our priority is to set up a Marxist party on the basis of the socialists. Uh, and that's what they, what they did. I do think that in the long term, uh, it would have been very hard to turn the CNT into a Communist Party in the sense that there were, there were ideological obstacles between Bolshevism and anarchism. This is uh, undeniable, particularly the anarchist attachment to the idea of the trade union and to syndicalism. Uh, as soon as Borodin and, and Phillips mentioned the, the word of a communist party, there was an immediate, uh, there, was, there was skepticism on the part of the, of the anarchists towards the, the, the word party itself. But yes, uh, the main reason for this, I would say, comes down to uh, Baradin's subjective um, strategy, his own personal initiative. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's really interesting. I, I, I entirely agree with you that, like, um, that, you know, longer term, things like the 21 conditions for entry into the Comintern would have created um, stumbling blocks towards anarchist participation that probably, you know, could never have been overcome. But all the same, it is curious, isn't it? And it also gives um, 
insight into how like the the common turn was operating there so was it the case that somebody like borodin didn't know that lenin or trotsky had this had these ideas about how the anarchists were the more healthy elements of the labor movement or was it that they they knew that 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 you know that the ostensible leaders had that attitude but they were sufficiently autonomous sufficiently confident to just disregard that point of view and orient themselves to the socialists Yes, this is a very good question. It's something that I am very interested in, and I, I devoted most of my of my postdoc in in, in Mexico to, to this question. Essentially, uh, I I refer to Borodin and his team as uh, as prototypes for the early uh, communist international organizers. They were not uh, unique. The communist international dispatched all the such uh, characters or leaned on uh, on on cadres that they recruited haphazardly here and there. And essentially, in the early months of the Communist International, these uh, agents enjoyed very significant autonomy. Uh, and they, yes, they operated autonomously, uh, essentially. Often they were in contact with centers of communist organization outside of Russia. Russia, of course, was in the middle of uh, the civil war. And uh, it was very difficult to communicate with, with Moscow. So Borodin in particular corresponded assiduously with the Western Secretariat of the Communist International, which was based in Amsterdam, the so-called Western Bureau, the Amsterdam Bureau of the, of the Comintern, um, which was uh, very heterodox from a, Bolshevik, from the, a Bolshevik point of view. For instance, the, the Western Bureau of the Comintern was anti-parliamentarian was very adamant that communists should not participate in, in elections. And uh, it is not a coincidence that the Mexican Communist Party, for instance, was uh, anti-parliamentarian in its first uh, years of existence. And this, in a way, points to the fluidity of the communist movement in its early, uh, in its early phase and to the autonomy of its uh, main organizers in its uh, first months of existence. In a way, the first congresses of the Communist International in, in 1920, 1921, as late even as 1922, were um, oriented towards the ideological homogenization of what was at this point an extremely heterogeneous and, uh, and diverse uh, coalition of forces. And, in part, yes, this responded to the autonomy and the capacity of local organizers like Borodin to impress their own biases and their own opinions on uh, the first communist groups that were that were set up. Really interesting getting into those details about you know how this is working on the ground, but almost despite this uh, indifference or hostility from from delegates such as Borodin, you know the, the enthusiasm for what was happening in Russia sort of did did remain within anarchist circles, even if, you know, they weren't being actively sort of encouraged to get involved in the Bolshevik project. And and one kind of way this is manifest is the Spanish CNT's initial early adherence to the Third International, which can be seen as kind of reflective of where we began, that, that kind of early anarchist enthusiasm for the Russian Revolution broadly. But this, this adherence early on to the Third International is, is often seen as, as unrepresentative, um, accidental, I think ties in with those notions that this is due to an ignorance or a lack of understanding. Um, I mean, is that how you see this particular episode in, in, in this relationship? Yes, it's a very important uh, event. The Comedia Congress of uh, the CNT, the National Confederation of Labour in December 1919, uh, this was an important event for Spanish anarchists on many levels, but also with regards to their international relations. As you said, uh, the CNT provisionally affiliated with, uh, with the Communist International. Very often, uh, historians underscore the conditional character of this uh, adherence. The document that was approved at the, at the Congress said that, yes, affiliation was provisional, that the CNT would uh, try to launch its own international uh, project. This, was, this is what was suggested but at a later stage. And also the, this final thesis also uh, underscored 
the vacuumist character of the of the CNT, and uh, this thesis also um, enshrined libertarian communism as the official ideology of the CNT. This is uh, a bit. Uh, this is more complex than it uh, appears. We might think that the fact that affiliation was provisional, the fact that the CNT spoke of its own uh, workers international, and the reference to Bakunin probably suggests that support for the Russian Revolution was fairly limited at this point. And yes, it is true that by late 1919, probably the attitude towards revolutionary Russia had started to change somewhat, although I would say that it was still generally uh, very supportive and there was sympathy towards Soviet uh, Russia. Uh, but I think we have to look uh, beyond the formal uh, the formal rhetoric of, of this uh, thesis and see what was going on in the Congress and we have to set this within the own, within the internal political uh, battles that were taking place in the CNT. The National Confederation of Labour at this point was sharply divided between the so-called moderates that were strong in Catalonia in particular, around the figure of Salvador Segui. And then we have the, the radicals or the hardliners who were stronger also in Catalonia, but in Andalusia, in, in central Spain, um, in Aragon. They were grouped around figures like uh, uh, Manuel Buenacasa, who was the national secretary of the CNT, Eusebio Carbó. Uh, they were pretty strong in Valencia as well. And they were popular, these hardliners were popular among the youth in particular. And what was uh, peculiar about these hardliners is that they were extremely uh, radical and they were uh, very vocally anarchist. They, they, they referred to themselves constantly as anarchists whereas the moderates around Segui tended to speak of syndicalism. They were, less, they were less doctrinaire. But the radicals also, not only did they emphasize that they were anarchists, but also they were strongly pro-Bolshevik. And the way that I present this in, in, my, in, my, in my work is that the, the radicals essentially used the Russian Revolution as a battering ram against the, the, the moderates and to drive the CNT leftwards. At this point, Bolshevism essentially meant radicalism. Being a Bolshevik was to be a revolutionary, to be intransigent, to make no concessions, to fight uh, the, the bourgeoisie and the state, and to use violence as well. So this is why Bolshevism became an important element of the, 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 the outlook of the radicals. It was in fact the moderates who began to articulate an anarchist critique of uh, Bolshevism. Segui famously, at this point in the, in the autumn of 1919, made some statements criticizing the Marxist character of the Soviet state. And the way I see this, uh, this uh, final thesis is that it was, in a way, it was a compromise between the radicals and the, and the moderates. And if you look in detail at the, at the minutes of the Comedia Congress, you will see that the first, um, they call it a dictamen, the first thesis that was put forward about uh, international relations was a proposal by several trade unions from Catalonia, Valencia and elsewhere and it had an extremely, uh, extremely militant pro-Bolshevik uh, character. It called for the full affiliation with the Communist International. And not only that, it also said that the CNT should fight for, fight for the dictatorship of the proletariat. This thesis was not uh, approved and they reached this compromise uh, formulation of provisional uh, affiliation. So this is the way I, I read it. Having said that, I do acknowledge that probably sympathy for, for Soviet Russia was not as strong as, say, uh, a year earlier, but it was still very intense and it should be framed within this uh, conflict between the radicals and the moderates that really shaped many of the ideological debates that took place in the Comedia Congress, not only over the, the international uh, question. That's really interesting, Arturo. And just to sort of follow up on that, to what extent do the, the actual delegations that then go to Moscow, to what extent are they like sort of carrying on those um, those debates that have taken place, which, which, as you've expressed, are very much within the normal frameworks of anarcho-syndicalism, a classic kind of battle between the more moderate or gradual organisation-focused uh, activists and those who are like more for Im immediate... Uh, potentially violent uh, rupture in in some um, accounts you know in particular the delegate the, the delegation that's that goes 
to represent the CNT at the Conference of the Red International of Labour Unions is presented as being a, um, you know, not representative of the CNT's true traditions and perhaps even being a kind of covertly pro-Bolshevik, almost like a cell like, uh, that, that acquires this representative function almost by like duplicitous means. Yes, that, that, that's, a, that's a very good uh, point. Well, there were, as you mentioned, there were two two CNT delegations to Soviet Russia. The first one in 1920, uh, it was Angel Pestaña who traveled there. I think there were other two uh, delegates who had been selected to go to Russia with him. If I'm not mistaken, one of them was Carbo, who was uh, a very vocal uh, pro-Bolshevik figure in the CNT at this point. And there was someone else, maybe Mauro Bajatierra, but I, I can't remember right now. Uh, but he was part of a larger uh, uh, group. He was, yes. Uh, but ultimately, only, only he made it to uh, Russia. Pestaña belonged to the Segui faction. He had this, yes, perhaps the term moderate is a bit problematic, uh, but I think there is no satisfactory definition for this group. More organization-oriented, less, less intransigent, more willing, more flexible in their tactics. Pestaña traveled to Russia and... Upon his return to Spain, he presented himself as a as an anarchist who fought uh, Bolshevik authoritarianism, who protested against uh, Bolshevik attempts to dominate uh, the the Comintern Congress. However, if we look at the minutes of the of the Congress in in Moscow, we will see that Pestaña's attitude was in fact much more cautious. He was not as vocal as he later uh, claimed. What we can say is that he was fairly cautious, and I think this reflects first of all the fact that he was probably more sympathetic to the Bolsheviks than he later claimed. His first publications on this, uh, on his trip, actually came out uh, in 1922, so almost two years after he traveled to, uh, to Russia. I think he was more, more supportive of the Bolsheviks than he was willing to admit. But also I think he was, he was very cautious because he was uh, afraid of... Uh, of anarchist reactions back home in, in Spain. He had to walk a very fine line between, uh, yes, the, the agreements at the Congress, the different factions within the CNT. So I think he, if we look at his, uh, at his, um, at his demeanor in, in Moscow, we will see that he was often unwilling to sign documents. He, he had very long discussions, tried to rephrase them. And I think this is more connected to Spanish, uh, politics and to CNT politics than to his own abstract ideological uh, evolution. The 1921 delegation was more adamantly pro-Bolshevik, pro but also they had a, they had a, a, a clear uh, mandate. The CNT held a plenum in April 1921 that approved uh, a fairly pro-Soviet resolution, and this is where this delegation was, was elected. In early 1921, support for the Russian Revolution still uh, ran high. Of course, Spanish. we also have to look at the broader context. Spanish anarchists in early 1921, especially in Catalonia, were undergoing uh, severe uh, repression. So I would say that it was generally difficult for them to follow events in, in Russia. And most importantly, I think, the fact of undergoing such severe repression especially among the, the youth and among the factory delegates and those who were on the front line of the struggle with the state and with the, and with the, the sindicatos libres, the competing unions that were closely uh, connected to, the, to Martinez Anido and the local and, and, and the state apparatus, essentially. Yes, these young, young anarchists were probably still pro-Bolshevik also in the sense that they had been, they had become, uh, they were extremely radicalized by their own experience in Spain, and they were particularly attuned to the question of violence, and probably quite receptive to uh, the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat as a, as a result of their own personal experience of undergoing severe state repression, which generated the idea that if you do the revolution and and you overthrow the state and the bourgeoisie, you will have to prepare to uh, fight back against uh, the counter-revolution. And you will have to organize quite uh, on, on quite quite uh, ruthlessly to to fight back. So this was the context of the April plenum. These delegates went uh, to Moscow. They did not capitulate before the Bolsheviks. Again, if we look at the minutes of the 
of the Congress where they participated, the Red International of uh, Labor Unions, they made some uh, criticisms. They, uh, they, uh, they prepared alternative resolutions. They, they had long debates with, uh, with the Bolsheviks. But ultimately, it is correct to say that they have a, a conciliatory attitude. And when they returned to Spain, they did so uh, with the idea of defending the, the Congress resolutions and of keeping the CNT within the, 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 communist, the communist International and also the Red International of uh, Labor Unions. The question is, I think that they, the, these delegates respected their, their mandate, but the important thing to note is that in the summer of 1921, and particularly that autumn, the mood in the CNT began to change in the opposite direction against uh, Bolshevism. This is where we see really a qualitative transformation. So these delegates found it very hard to defend uh, the, the resolutions that they had uh, approved in, in Moscow that summer. When they're coming back in the summer in 1921, it's actually the, the broader context in Spain that's changed really rather than what they went out there to kind of to discuss or to be a part of. Um, <clears throat> can you kind of outline why that mood in the in the CNT had, had started to shift then by by nineteen twenty one, and if the you know the experience of nineteen seventeen to twenty one had had significantly shifted a, an ideological understanding of of Marxism of Bolshevism, what had changed by this point? Why did they come back to this more hostile environment? It, this is a complex uh, question. It does not have an easy uh, answer. The, the classical explanation by most historians is essentially the, the crushing of the Kronstadt uh, rebellion and the fact that anarchists, not only in Spain, but also internationally, had access to more detailed accounts of uh, Bolshevik authoritarianism. And I do think that this is part of the, of the story. There is no doubt that events in Russia had, uh, were also changing in a, in, a, in a worrying direction. And the repression against the dissident left became uh, much more intense around this uh, point. In the spring of 1921, in particular, in the aftermath of the Kronstadt rebellion. This is also the time when the, the conflict, or rather the, the minuet, the ups and downs, uh, in the relationship between the Red Army and Magnus insurgent army in Ukraine, tilt uh, in, in yes in the, in the direction of, of op an open clash and essentially the destruction of uh, of the Magnovist experiment in in Ukraine. Uh, this still is fairly um, un is relatively unknown in Western Europe. Uh, this will only become uh, a point of controversy at a later stage, the Kronstadt Rebellion, the Magno question. What uh, was most important at this point was the, the arrest of several, several leading anarchists in Moscow and uh, Petrograd. These uh, anarchists in the big urban areas, of course, were more connected to, uh, to foreign comrades. And they also were in touch with the delegates who traveled to, uh, to Russia in the summer of 1921. I'm thinking here of people like uh, Maximov, like Volin, like uh, Arshinov. They were arrested around uh, this point. They went on a hunger strike in the Butyrka prison in, in Moscow. And this became quite a big, quite, quite a scandal uh, for, for Western anarchists. This certainly played a role. Also, the, the new economic policy, which marked a more moderate, however you want to call it, pragmatic phase in the Russian Revolution, the epic, the revolutionary epic of the previous years, clearly came to an end. If I'm not mistaken, this was also the, the time of, of the Rapallo treaties. So Soviet Russia began to make efforts to normalize its relations with the capitalist West. The Communist International approved the, the policy of the United Front with all the labor forces and particularly with uh, social democracy. The anarchists were not uh, happy about this, and especially in Spain, where this essentially meant establishing some sort of collaboration with the, with the, with the Socialist Party. So yes, changes in Russia played an important role. But then we have to look at what was happening in Spain as well. Here, I think there are important uh, factors. 
the key, the, the basic thing is that the Spanish labor movement had been uh, defeated by this by this point. Earlier on in 1921, there was still a, an effort to resist uh, the the offensive by Martinez Anido by the by yes the the, the repressive uh, wave that set in in late 1920, but really a year later, the CNT had been virtually destroyed. And there was a mood of uh, demoralization, of exhaustion, and of uncertainty. And this was not only happening in Spain, but this really reflected the ebb flow of the post-First uh, World War uh, upheavals that, that had shaken the, the continent. The fascists were on the offensive in, in Italy. The counter-revolution had triumphed in, in, in Hungary. Attempts, uh, the, the march action in, uh, in, in, in Germany had been defeated as well. So clearly the European, the attempt at the, at the, at the, at the European revolution had been defeated. This context of uh, demoralization generated a sense of ideological conservatism as well, and an attempt to go back to all the certainties and to end this uh, connection with, with Bolshevism and this, this process of ideological revisionism that has started in late 1917. So this was very important, the, the, the change in the general outlook of the labor movement in Spain and internationally. And finally, I would point to a third very important factor that is often dis disregarded, which is the emergence of uh, the communist movement. Many communist parties were not created until 1921. In Spain, there was a, com a very small uh, communist party that had been set up in April 1920 by, by Borodin and his, and his uh, team. But the Spanish Communist Party actually emerged as a unified force in November 1921, if I'm not uh, mistaken, when the two communist factions that had split off from the PSOE actually unified into, into a single organization. In other countries as well, large communist parties began to emerge in 1921. And I think this shaped anarchist attitudes towards the Russian Revolution in the sense that the communists represented a very unwelcome competitor at a time of defeat for the anarchist uh, movement. Retrospectively, we can say that the, the Spanish communists were, were a weak uh, force that was in no position to displace uh, the anarchists. But at the time, this was not, uh, very, this was not so, uh, so clear. In other countries, the communist parties had emerged as, as powerful forces. In places such as uh, Portugal or France, they actually did co-opt or displace significant sectors of the syndicalist uh, movement. And this was followed in Spain with uh, preoccupation. And there was the fear that in Spain also the, the, the communists would eat into uh, the anarchist social base at a time of extreme insecurity for the, for the movement. And if we look at anarchist publications around this point, they have a ferociously anti-communist uh, character and it's very much directed against the Spanish Communist Party. This party is presented as a spin-off of the, of the PSOE. The main argument is that they, 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 they carry, they, they, they have split off from the PSOE, they're ex-socialists, and that their character and their, and their moral fiber is, is still very much the same. And there's also a lot of agitation against the question of the United Front. This is also a time of, of great hostility between the CNT and the, and the Socialist Party and its uh, trade unions. So all of this comes together and reinforces anarchist skepticism towards uh, the Russian Revolution and towards uh, Bolshevism. And finally, I will very quickly say that the Congress of uh, the summer of 1921 in Moscow was uh, also quite a, a controversial affair. Uh, as I said, the Bolsheviks were making an effort to homogenize the communist movement internationally, and this generated a lot of friction with the anarchists as well. So the, reso the resolutions that these delegates brought back to Spain did indeed have quite a controversial character. Just to quickly follow in with that, it's not really a question, but I just I think it's a really nice kind of call back to where we started in in when you were saying, you know, why why were international anarchists attracted or drawn to um, events in Russia early on? You know, you said it, it's okay if it's just the beginning or this is a this is an opening of possibilities. And it sounds like from all the, the different angles that you've approached it there, that it seems like this is this is that opportunity shutting down. This isn't the beginning. 
anymore. This is it's proved that those early mistakes weren't just teething problems, but actually evidence of a, a of what's going to happen further down the line. Completely, yes. Now, in a say, in a way, we can say that uh, that uh, the, the the window of opportunity was uh, had 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 shut very 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 clearly, and uh, if one went. To, to if anarchists went to Russia and thought that what was going on there was the beginning of the world revolution was just the start of a much uh, broader and more significant process then it was very easy to uh, to brush off the excesses the misery the the arbitrariness this was easy to explain away if one thought that that was the beginning of a broader uh, process of course, if one uh, thought that the Russian Revolution had come to an end, that the labor movement internationally had been uh, defeated, it was much more difficult to uh, to accept uh, those negative aspects of uh, of the Soviet uh, experiment. So uh, arbitrariness could no longer be defined as a pardonable excess in the epic of the World Revolution, but it actually became it started to be defined as the outcome of uh, Marxist uh, ideology or the misery and the, the, the economic difficulties of, uh, of Russia. Initially, they were blamed on the blockade and the Russian civil war. Uh, from late 1921 onwards, what we start to see is that they are blamed on um, bureaucratism and, excess, and the excessive centralization of the Soviet state, which, of course, responded to uh, the Marxist ideology of, uh, of the Bolsheviks. So it was very much this uh, the closing of of uh, of the window of opportunity that also cha- changed the entire interpretation of uh, of the Russian Revolution and of Soviet reality. Do you think then that um, with the end of this like short-lived romance between anarchism and Bolshevism, that the anarchists have like returned to their original understanding of of Marxism? Because whatever happens. As a result of the process of the the Bolshevik Revolution, it's still like a world historical event. Prior to the the Russian Revolution, the general anarchist understanding of Marxism was that it was that it accommodated to the state. That it wasn't it wasn't sufficiently revolutionary. It wasn't even sufficiently anti-capitalist. You know, it was happy for like capitalist progress to like proceed and things like this. But the the Bolsheviks introduce a new like. Or, or the possibility for understanding Marxism in a different kind of way that is like voluntarist, intervening, that is not prepared to just allow history to run its course. But then the anarchist critique of Bolshevism as it emerges seems to just fold that experience back into the previous understanding of Marxism. Do you think that's true? Or do you think that there is like um, a differentiated critique of Marxism that begins to, like, you know, that, that the anarchists are able to sort of take on in that? in the 1920s i do think that something changed uh, in the in the early 1920s anarchists were critical of marxism before the before the russian revolution but in spain in particular they were they were used to a to a very specific brand of uh, marxism which was essentially the 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 ideology of spanish social democracy the, the PSOE, the Spanish Socialist uh, Party, adhered to a very mechanistic uh, reading of uh, Marx that was very very institutional, very statist, and quite reformist as well. And prior to 1917, the anarchist critique of Marxism had very much dr- been driven against uh, reformism, not so much against the question of authority and the state and, and, and the vanguard, but much more against uh, the socialists' accommodation with uh, the ruling class and with the state, the Spanish capitalist uh, state. And I think one of the reasons why they came to embrace Bolshevism so enthusiastically is because this was essentially a very different ideology to the type of Marxism that they were used to, they were used to. And it is also significant. I pointed this out that the Spanish socialists were quite skeptical to the Russian Revolution from the outset. Not the rank and file, but certainly the, the the traditional party leadership. So this was a new form of uh, Marxism, and I will also add that it is no coincidence that the first uh, anarchist 
opponents to the Bolsheviks internationally emerged in places such as Germany or Sweden, where in fact uh, pre-1917 Marxism had been much more diverse and had and had had a very militant wing around people like Rosa Luxemburg. German Social Democracy also had a, a revolutionary faction. So local people like Rudolf Rocker, of course, had a more sophisticated understanding of what Marxism was that went back much more to the debates in the 1870s between Marx and, and Bakunin. Well, having said that, the Spanish anarchists came to embrace uh, Bolshevik-style Marxism, or at least to accept it, when they turned against uh, the Soviet experiment in the 1920s, they basically had to uh, redefine their, their critique of Marxism because they could not simply go back to their old, uh, their old position vis-à-vis -vis the, the Socialist Party because this, for, this brand of Marxism was very different from that of, uh, of Pablo Iglesias, the leader of the, of the socialists. So what they did essentially was to strengthen the anti-statist and anti-authoritarian uh, dimension of uh, of uh, anarchism uh, in doing this they did go back to the to the old debates between uh, marx and bakunin over the question of authority in the in the first uh, international i would say that in the early 1910s these debates in spain uh, were not uh, very present they were not very well known among uh, militants that changed in the 1920s i, I remember a quote from uh, redemption which was one of the most important anarchist uh, periodicals at the time that said that the, the the old debate between Marx and Bakunin in the First International is still unsettled, it is still going on, and this is still a battle that we are fighting today. The terms of the debate have not changed. This is essentially the, the point that they were making. So the anti-statist uh, critique was uh, strengthened. Uh, it became an inherent part of uh, anarchist identity, and it became basically the, the, the dividing line and their, their main line of attack against the Spanish uh, communists, which became their new uh, adversaries uh, in, in Spain. And I would say this, had some, this was a significant ideological transformation in the sense that it would shape their policies in the, in the 1930s. I alluded to this when I said that this uh, turn against uh, authoritarianism and this very uh, blunt critique of, uh, of Marxism as a whole and also against revolutionary Marxism. This shaped their policies in the 1930s in the sense that it, it uh, made them extremely hostile to any possibility of actually taking power and establishing some, sort, some form of uh, revolutionary government. I do think that this played a part in the debates uh, uh, of July 1936 when the anarchists were confronted with the possibility of uh, making a bid for, for power or trying to establish some sort of revolutionary authority to supplant the old, uh, the old uh, Second Republic. I think that this, this not only hostility towards uh, power and towards authority, but this fear also of uh, the corrupting um, influence of power, which was very much shaped by their criticism of, of the Soviet uh, experience, this conditioned their decision not to make any, any bid on power uh, and collaborate with, with Republican authorities. We must remember as well that the 1930s, by the 1930s, uh, Stalin was obviously at the peak of his power in the, in the Soviet Union. And if we follow the, the, the evolution of anarchist uh, criticism of the Soviet Union, the argument was that uh, Stalin was the inevitable consequence of Leninist uh, authoritarianism. And uh, there, was, yeah, there, there was the impression that any attempt to, to conquer power unilaterally would, would lead to, um, to bureaucratism and to, uh, to corruption and ultimately to, to authoritarianism and, uh, yes, to, to a dictatorship. Uh, I think I do. Th of course, there were many more factors at play in the summer of 1936, but I do think the the anarchist intellectual history, with regards to the to the Russian Revolution, played a part as well. Uh, it became part and parcel anti anti statism and anti authoritarianism became part and parcel of their identity in a way that had not been the case prior to 1917, in my opinion.
that's really interesting. I just want to like sort of maybe think about it from a slightly different angle in the sense that um, you know, like one of the key like divisions between Marx and Bakunin is the question of like voluntarism, and Marx was very like dismissive of what he thought of as uh, Bakunin's lack of concern for social conditions in terms of like creating a revolutionary possibilities. You know, that's something that is, you know, was also leveled by people like the Mensheviks at, at the Bolsheviks. You know, that this was like a, a kind of like deviation from from Marx by the, that voluntarist element, if you like, of, of Bolshevism. It does seem like that remains a um, like that retains a kind of thread or an attraction within at least some aspects of of, of the CNT. So I'm thinking, for example, of um, in 1931. The Madrid Congress, Juan García Oliver, um, in reflecting on the, the recent history of Spanish anarchism, compared Pestaña and Segui, who we've heard about, unfavorably to Lenin and Trotsky. You know, they had failed to make the revolution that Lenin and Trotsky had succeeded in making. Then subsequently, during the Second Republic, Juan García Oliver in particular, but people around him, are uh, uh, labeled anarcho-Bolsheviks particularly by younger and more perhaps uh, anarchists who have perhaps grown up with that critique of of, um, Bolshevism as a part of their ideological formation in a way that, like, say, the generation of Juan García Oliver had really been attracted to, you know, the Bolshevik revolution in its initial stages. Do you think that, like, that idea of anarcho-Bolshevism has any descriptive power or, or should we just understand it as purely, like, polemical insults? This is a this is a complicated question. I, I I know much less about the about the 1930s. Perhaps it has some anarcho-Bolshevism, as as far as I understand it, was was uh, used above all as a weapon in uh, in factional uh, uh, struggles to dismiss the people around García Oliver. But it possibly has some uh, analytical value. Um, in the sense that people like García Oliver had uh, grown up in the years of uh, of the pro-Bolshevik uh, euphoria in the in the CNT, they had a certain admiration for Lenin and Trotsky, as as you you mentioned with regards to his uh, to his statements in in 1931. And above all, they uh, this is a well uh, this is well known. Uh, García Oliver and and the people around him had been in touch and they were familiar with uh, the Russian platformists, those Russian exiles around uh, Arshinov, it is, if I'm not mistaken, who uh, who actually picked on many aspects of uh, of Bolshevism and, and sought to syncretize that with, uh, with anarchism. So probably, yes, there was a certain uh, legacy of uh, Bolshevism in, in García Oliver and his, uh, and his uh, people. Yes, the voluntarism and the the perspective of conquering power ultimately and of utilizing heavy-handed methods against uh, your your opponents and also this fairly cynical vision of uh, of revolution that ultimately it is a power struggle and uh, one has to <laughs> to uh, and it is an armed struggle where opponents will have to be uh, repressed and this goes against uh, against uh, freedom and against the autonomy of the of the individual so yes probably this uh, fairly pragmatic and even cynical and, and, and this vision of uh, revolution was probably shaped by the Soviet experience yes um, thanks so much Arturo I don't know if it, is there anything else that you want to talk about like, you mentioned that you're writing your thesis into a book is that something that you want to like plug <laughs> yes but I don't uh, I don't have a publisher yet well you know a lot of high-powered publishers listen to a podcast so I would expect them to get in touch they should be you know, knocking your door down because it's fascinating work and you you articulate it really well. And yeah, I, I think it's only a matter of time. Thanks for listening. You can keep in touch with the podcast via email, abcwithdannyandjim at gmail.com and Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, all at ABC Danny and Jim. You can subscribe to our newsletter at abcwithdannyandjim.substack.com. The podcast music is Steering Orchestra and Rafael Dinosil, Gente de Miniaterra. 
The podcast logo is an adapted version of the Left Book Club logo. And the image in this episode is a Spanish campesino brandishing a hammer and sickle, taken in Aragon in the early stages of the Spanish Civil War in 1936. Love and solidarity. Until next time.